Volume two, chapter eight of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Volume two, chapter eight. Chapter eight. So stands the Thracian herdsman with his spear full in the gap and hopes the hunted bear, and hears him in the rustling wood, and sees his course at distance by the bending trees, and thinks, Here comes my mortal enemy, and either he must fall in fight, or I. Palamon and Arcate I took the route towards the college as recommended by Mr. Jarvey, less with the intention of seeking for any object of interest or amusement than to arrange my own ideas and meditate on my future conduct. I wandered from one quadrangle of old-fashioned buildings to another, and from thence to the college yards, or walking-ground, where, pleased with the solitude of the place, most of the students being engaged in their classes, I took several turns, pondering on the waywardness of my own destiny. I could not doubt from the circumstances attending my first meeting with this person Campbell that he was engaged in some strangely desperate courses, and the reluctance with which Mr. Jarvey alluded to his person or pursuits, as well as all the scene of the preceding night, tended to confirm these suspicions. Yet, to this man, Diana Vernon had not, it would seem, hesitated to address herself in my behalf, and the conduct of the magistrate himself towards him showed an odd mixture of kindness and even respect, with pity and censure. Something there must be uncommon in Campbell's situation and character, and what was still more extraordinary, it seemed that his fate was doomed to have influence over, and connection with, my own. I resolved to bring Mr. Jarvey to close quarters on the first proper opportunity, and learn as much as was possible on the subject of this mysterious person, in order that I might judge whether it was possible for me, without prejudice to my reputation, to hold that degree of farther correspondence with him, to which he seemed to invite. While I was musing on these subjects, my attention was attracted by three persons who appeared at the upper end of the walk through which I was sauntering, seemingly engaged in very earnest conversation. That intuitive impression which announces to us the approach of whomsoever we love or hate with intense vehemence long before a more indifferent eye can recognise their persons, flashed upon my mind the sure conviction that the midmost of these three men was rashly Osbaldistone. To address him was my first impulse. My second was to watch him until he was alone, or at least to reconnoitre his companions before confronting him. The party was still at such distance, and engaged in such deep discourse, that I had time to step unobserved to the other side of a small hedge, which imperfectly screened the alley in which I was walking. 
it was at this period the fashion of the young and gay to wear in their morning walks a scarlet cloak often laced and embroidered above their other dress and it was the trick of the time for gallants occasionally to dispose it so as to muffle a part of the face the imitating this fashion with the degree of shelter which i received from the hedge enabled me to meet my cousin unobserved by him or the others except perhaps as a passing stranger i was not a little startled at recognising in his companions that very morris on whose account i had been summoned before justice inglewood and mr mcvitie the merchant from whose starched and severe aspect i had recoiled on the preceding day a more ominous conjunction to my own affairs and those of my father could scarce have been formed i remembered morris's false accusation against me which he might be as easily induced to renew as he had been intimidated to withdraw i recollected the inauspicious influence of macfitie over my father's affairs testified by the imprisonment of owen and i now saw both these men combined with one whose talent for mischief i deemed little inferior to those of the great author of all ill and my abhorrence of whom almost amounted to dread when they had passed me for some paces i turned and followed them unobserved at the end of the walk they separated morris and mcvitie leaving the gardens and rashleigh returning alone through the walks i was now determined to confront him and demand reparation for the injuries he had done my father though in what form redress was likely to be rendered remained to be known this however i trusted to chance and flinging back the cloak in which i was muffled i passed through a gap of the low hedge and presented myself before rashleigh as in a deep reverie he paced down the avenue rashleigh was no man to be surprised or thrown off his guard by sudden occurrences yet he did not find me thus close to him wearing undoubtedly in my face the marks of that indignation which was glowing in my bosom without visibly starting at an apparition so sudden and menacing you are well met sir was my commencement i was about to take a long and doubtful journey in quest of you you know little of him you sought then replied rashleigh with his usual undaunted composure i am easily found by my friends still more easily by my foes your manner compels me to ask in which class i must rank mr francis osbaldistone in that of your foes sir i answered in that of your mortal foes unless you instantly do justice to your benefactor my father by accounting for his property and to whom mr osbaldistone answered rashleigh am i a member of your father's commercial establishment to be compelled to give any account of my proceedings in those concerns which are in every respect identified with my own surely not to a young gentleman whose exquisite taste for literature would 
render such discussions disgusting and unintelligible. Your sneer, sir, is no answer. I will not part with you until I have full satisfaction concerning the fraud you meditate. You shall go with me before a magistrate. Be it so, said Rashleigh, and made a step or two as if to accompany me. Then, pausing, proceeded, Were I inclined to do so as you would have me, you should soon feel which of us had most reason to dread the presence of a magistrate. But I have no wish to accelerate your fate. Go, young man, amuse yourself in your world of poetical imaginations, and leave the business of life to those who understand and can conduct it. His intention, I believe, was to provoke me, and he succeeded. Mr. Osbaldistone, I said, this tone of calm insolence shall not avail you. You ought to be aware that the name we both bear never submitted to insult, and shall not in my person be exposed to it. You remind me, said Rashleigh, with one of his blackest looks, that it was dishonoured in my person, and you remind me also by whom. Do you think I have forgotten the evening at Osbaldistone Hall, when you cheaply and with impunity played the bully at my expense? For that insult, never to be washed out but by blood, for the various times you have crossed my path and always to my prejudice, for the persevering folly with which you seek to traverse schemes, the importance of which you neither know nor are capable of estimating. For all these, sir, you owe me a long account, for which there shall come an early day of reckoning. Let it come when it will, I replied. I shall be willing and ready to meet it. Yet... You seem to have forgotten the heaviest article, that I had the pleasure to aid Miss Vernon's good sense and virtuous feeling in extricating her from your infamous toils. I think his dark eyes flashed actual fire at this home taunt, and yet his voice retained the same calm, expressive tone with which he had hitherto conducted the conversation. I had other views with respect to you, young man, was his answer, less hazardous for you, and more suitable to my present character and former education. But, I see, you will draw on yourself the personal chastisement your boyish insolence so well merits. Follow me to a more remote spot, where we are less likely to be interrupted. I followed him accordingly, keeping a strict eye on his motions, for I believed him capable of the very worst actions. We reached an open spot in a sort of wilderness, laid out in the Dutch taste with clipped hedges and one or two statues. I was on my guard, and it was well with me that I was so, for Rashley's sword was out and at my breast ere I could throw down my cloak or get my weapon unsheathed so that I only saved my life by springing a pace or two backwards. 
he had some advantage in the difference of our weapons for his sword as i recollect was longer than mine and had one of those bayonet or three-cornered blades which are now generally worn whereas mine was what we then called a saxon blade narrow flat and two-edged and scarcely so manageable as that of my enemy in other respects we were pretty equally matched for what advantage i might possess in superior address and agility was fully counterbalanced by rashleigh's great strength and coolness he fought indeed more like a fiend than a man with concentrated spite and desire of blood only allayed by that cool consideration which made his worst actions appear yet worse from the air of deliberate premeditation which seemed to accompany them his obvious malignity of purpose never for a moment threw him off his guard and he exhausted every feint and stratagem proper to the science of defence while at the same time he meditated the most desperate catastrophe to our encounter on my part the combat was at first sustained with more moderation my passions though hasty were not malevolent and the walk of two or three minutes space gave me time to reflect that rashleigh was my father's nephew the son of an uncle who after his fashion had been kind to me and that his falling by my hand could not but occasion much family distress my first resolution therefore was to attempt to disarm my antagonist a manoeuvre in which confiding in my superiority of skill and practice i anticipated little difficulty i found however i had met my match and one or two foils which i received and from the consequences of which i narrowly escaped obliged me to observe more caution in my mode of fighting by degrees i became exasperated at the rancour with which rashleigh sought my life and returned his passes with an inveteracy resembling in some degree his own so that the combat had all the appearance of being destined to have a tragic issue that issue had nearly taken place at my expense my foot slipped in a full lounge which i made at my adversary and i could not so far recover myself as completely to parry the thrust with which my pass was repaid yet it took but partial effect running through my waistcoat grazing my ribs and passing through my coat behind the hilt of rashleigh's sword so great was the vigour of his thrust struck against my breast with such force as to give me great pain and confirm me in the momentary belief that i was mortally wounded eager for revenge i grappled with my enemy seizing with my left hand the hilt of his sword and shortening my own with the purpose of running him through the body our death grapple was interrupted by a man who forcibly threw himself between us and pushing us separate from each other exclaimed in a loud and commanding voice what the sons of those fathers who sucked the same breast shedding each other's blood as it were strangers by the hand of my father i will cleave to the brisket the first man that mints another stroke i looked up in astonishment the speaker was no other than campbell he had a basket-hilted broadsword drawn in his hand which he made to whistle around his head as he spoke 
as if for the purpose of enforcing his mediation. Rashleigh and I stared in silence at this unexpected intruder, who proceeded to exhort us alternately. Do you, Mr. Francis, opine that ye will re-establish your father's credit by quitting your kinsman's thrapple, or getting your rain snicket instead thereof in the college yards of Glasgow? Or do you, Mr. Rashley, think men will trust their lives and fortunes within that, when in point of trust and in point of confidence with a great political interest, gangs about brawling like a drunken gilly? Nay, never look gash or grim at me, man. If you're angry, you can how to turn the buckle of your belt behind you. You presume on my present situation, replied Rashley, or you would have hardly dared to interfere where my honour is concerned. Hit toot toot presume, and what for should it be presuming? Ye may be the richer man, Mr. Osbaldistone, as is most likely, and ye may be the more learned man, will guide dispute not. But I reckon ye are neither a prettier man nor a better gentleman than myself, and it will be news to me when I hear ye are as good. And dare, too, muckle daringness about it, I trow, here I stand, that I slashed as hit the haggis as ony o' the twa a year, and thought nae muckle o' my manning's warrack when it was doon, if my feet were on the heather as it's on the causeway, Ah, oh, this pickle gravel, that's little better. I hae been warre mistreasted than if I were set to gie ye baith your sering oot. Rashleigh had by this time recovered his temper completely. My kinsman, he said, will acknowledge he forced this quarrel on me. It was none of my seeking. I am glad we are interrupted before I chastised his forwardness more severely. "'Are ye hurt, lad?' inquired Campbell of me, with some appearance of interest. "'A very slight scratch,' I answered, "'which my kind cousin would not long have boasted of, had not you come between us.' "'In troth, and that's three, Mr. Rashley,' said Campbell. "'For the cold iron and your best blood would like to high become acquaint when I mastered Mr. Frank's right hand.' but never look like a sow playing upon a trump for the love of that man come and work with me i ain't used to tell ye and ye'll cool and come to yourself like mckibben's grouty when he sitted out at the window bowl pardon me sir said i your intentions have seemed friendly to me on more occasions than one but i must not and will not quit sight of this person until he yields up to me those means of doing justice to my father's engagements, of which he has treacherously possessed himself. You're a daft mon, replied Campbell. It will serve ye naething to follow us ye, ye know. Ye hae just ye know a mon. Would ye bring twa on your head, and might bide quiet? Twenty, I replied, if it be necessary. I laid my hand on Rashley's collar, who made no resistance, but said, with a sort of scornful smile, 
you hear him mcgregor he rushes on his fate will it be my fault if he falls into it the warrants are by this time ready and all is prepared the scotchman was obviously embarrassed he looked around and before and behind him and then said ne'er a bit will i yield my consent to his being ill-guided for standing up for the father that got him and i gave god's malison and mine to ah sought the magistrates justices bailies sheriffs sheriff officers constables and sick like black cattle that i been the plagues of poor old scotland this hundred year it was a merry world wherein every man held his ain gear wi his ain grip and when the countryside was fashed with warrants and poindings and apprisings and all that cheatery craft and ain't mar as it my conscience will not see this pure thoughtless lad ill-guided and especially with that sort of trade i would rather he fell tilt again and voted out like deuce honest men your conscience macgregor said rashleigh you forget how long you and i have known each other yes my conscience reiterated campbell or macgregor or whatever was his name i hate such a thing about me mr osbaldistone and therein it may weel chance that i hate the better are ye as to our knowledge of each other if ye ken what i am ye ken what usage it was made me what i am and whatever you may think i would not change states with the proudest of the oppressors that had driven me to take the heatherbrush for a build what you are mr rashleigh and what excuse ye had for being what you are is between your ain heart and the lang day and now mr francis let go his collar for he says truly that ye are in merry danger from a magistrate than he is and were your cause as straight as an arrow he would find a way to put you wrong so let go his craig as i was saying he seconded his words with an effort so sudden and unexpected that he freed rashleigh from my hold and securing me notwithstanding my struggles in his own herculean gripe he called out take the bent mr rashleigh make a pair of legs worth twa pair of hands ye hae done that before i knew you may thank this gentleman kinsman said rashleigh if i leave any part of my debt to you unpaid and if i quit you now it is only in the hope we shall soon meet again without the possibility of interruption he took up his sword wiped it sheathed it and was lost among the bushes the scotchman partly by force partly by remonstrance prevented my following him indeed i began to be of opinion my doing so would be to little purpose as i live by bread said campbell when after one or two struggles in which he used much forbearance towards me he perceived me inclined to stand quiet i never saw say dr callant i would he gain the best man in the country the breadth o his back can he gain me sick a camping as ye he doon what would ye do would ye follow the wolf to his den i tell ye man he has the old trap set for ye 
he has got the collector creature Morris to bring up all the old story again, and ye maun look for nae help frae me here, as ye go at Justice Inglewood's. It is nae good for my health to come in the gate of the Wigamore Bailey bodies. No, gang ye ways hame like a good baron. Do, and let the jory gae by. Keep out of sight of Rashley and Morris and that McVitty animal. Mind the clachan of Aberfoyle, as I said before, and by the word of a gentleman, I wanna see you round. But keep a calm so till we meet again. I maun gae and get Rashi out of the town afore war comes out, for the Nibberhams never out to mischief. Mind the clachan of Aberfoyle. He turned upon his heel and left me to meditate on the singular events which had befallen me. My first care was to adjust my dress and reassume my cloak, disposing it so as to conceal the blood which flowed down my right side. I had scarcely accomplished this when, the classes of the college being dismissed, the gardens began to be filled with parties of the students. I therefore left them as soon as possible, and, in my way towards Mr. Jarvie's, whose dinner hour was now approaching, I stopped at a small, unpretending shop, the sign of which intimated the indweller to be Christopher Nielsen, surgeon and apothecary. I requested of a little boy who was pounding some stuff in a mortar that he would procure me an audience of this learned pharmacopolist. He opened the door of the back shop where I found a lively elderly man who shook his head incredulously at some idle account I gave him of having been wounded accidentally by the button breaking off my antagonist's foil while I was engaged in a fencing match. When he had applied some lint and somewhat else he thought proper to the trifling wound I had received, he observed, There never was button on the foil that made this hurt. Ah, young blood, young blood, but we surgeons are a secret generation. If it were never hot blood and ill blood, what would become of the twa learned faculties? With which moral reflection he dismissed me, and I experienced very little pain or inconvenience afterwards from the scratch I had received. End of Volume 2, Chapter 8 Recording by Felicity Campbell, Whanganui, New Zealand